Alexander wanted to and succeeded in conquering the Persian Empire, the greatest empire that the West had known uh, to date. Hannibal wanted to defeat Rome, which he saw as a threat to his own country of Carthage. He failed, but in doing so, he had some very glorious moments. And finally, there was Julius Caesar, who first conquered Gaul and became the leading man in the Roman Empire. No one had ever had as much power as he did for one brief moment before it all came crashing down. One of the things that occurs to me is these great historical... I mean, these people are maniacs. If you value honesty, integrity, and diversity, all things that are increasingly lacking in established media, then consider supporting us at Trigonometry. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews, plus exclusive content. Click the membership link on the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us. Barry Strauss, such a pleasure to have you on the show. We sat down at a table next to each other here at ARC. Yeah. I said, what do you do? You said, I'm a historian of ancient civilizations uh -huh. and military historian. And I was like, we have to get you on the show right now. <laughs> Come on over. We, drag we dragged you in here. That's why we're here. Uh, we cannot wait. One of your books particularly really piqued our interest, which is about the great leaders of antiquity. Yeah. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Hannibal, etc. Let's get into it. Sure. What what were the themes that sort of bound those people together? Was there common threads that run through their histories, their lives? Uh, and, you know, why are they such significant people in the history of the world? Yeah, I mean, they were, uh, all three of them were immensely ambitious uh, and um, wanted nothing less than to be great conquerors. Uh, they belonged to what Abraham Lincoln would later call the tribe of the eagle. And the tribe of the eagle is, uh, like eagles, they're immensely impressive and powerful. Powerful, uh, but they're not always nice. Uh, <laughs> and nobody would accuse these three guys of being nice. Uh, they left, uh, they waded through seas of blood uh, in their attempt to conquer. Uh, Alexander wanted to and succeeded in conquering the Persian Empire, the greatest empire uh, that the West had known uh, to date. Um, Hannibal uh, wanted to defeat Rome. Uh, which he saw as a threat to his own country of Carthage. He failed, but in doing so, he had some very glorious moments. Uh, and finally, there was Julius Caesar, who first conquered Gaul uh, and changed the face of history, um, and then uh, saw, him, saw himself pitted in a war against the Roman Senate and defeated all of them as well and became uh, the leading man in the Roman Empire. No one had ever had as much power as he did for one brief moment before it all came crashing down. That's right. And was it really just about these guys' egos or were there economic and other processes that f made them you know, want to be conquerors, made them want to expand their empires? Or was it really just a big dick waving competition? <laughs> <laughs> well, ego was a very big part of it, but it wasn't just about the ego in all three cases. So Alexander... Um, could have seen Persia as a threat to Greek civilization, uh, and he saw himself as the avatar of the Greeks, somebody who was going to spread this civilization and create a new empire. So there was that. Uh, he had been a student of no less a person than Aristotle, uh, so he had a sense of grandeur and a sense of mission. Uh, Hannibal uh, saw himself as on a defensive uh, a defensive mission to protect his country from Rome, but also, and most important for him, was revenge. His father had been defeated by Rome, or rather, his father had been the last Carthaginian general standing who had not been defeated by Rome in an earlier war. And now Hannibal wanted to avenge his father, who had since died, um, and uh, put the Romans in their place, protect Carthage forever. Caesar 
like any ambitious Roman wanted to add to the empire. So there was that for his country. Uh, he might have seen Gaul as a threat, although it really hadn't been much of a threat for several generations, the Gauls, that is. Uh, he also was, by the standards of Roman politics, a populist, and he wanted to use his wealth for the good of the Roman people. But make no mistake about it, all three of these men had huge egos, and that was always a part of what they did. Do you think a lot of them believed in their own sense of the divine destiny, that they were destined to be rulers of the world? Was that partly what drove them as well? Yes, uh, absolutely. In the case of Alexander, you know, Alexander's mother was a woman named Olympias, uh, who told him that his father, his alleged father, Philip II, wasn't his real father. He had been uh, the product of a union with a snake who was Zeus. Uh, and later on, he believed that he was the, uh, that he was the son of Zeus, uh, that he was nothing less than divine in his inspiration. And many people believe that as well, because how else could he possibly have conquered this great empire? Hannibal did not believe he was divine, um, but he thought that he had the gods on his side. Before setting off on his expedition against Rome, he left from southern Spain. He went to the temple of uh, Hercules, um, who the Carthaginians called Melkart, which is in what is now the city of Cadiz in Spain. It's on the Atlantic Ocean. And the thought was that only Hercules could have dealt with someplace so terrifying as the Atlantic because these were Mediterranean folks. Uh, and then when he invaded Italy, he made a big show of the fact that he had Hercules on his side. And the Romans felt they had to do something with the Hercules gap. They had to create altars to Hercules to counter Hannibal. Caesar, Caesar of the three was, I think, the most skeptical. He was a philosopher. Um, I don't think he had uh, the gods on his side so much. But the Roman Senate, either to flatter him or to uh, insult him, give him a difficult political position, uh, voted to make, name him a god, to make him one of the gods of Rome. And I can only imagine, imagine Caesar having a somewhat amused attitude about that. I was in Rome a few years ago, and I went to Caesar's grave in Rome. Yes. And there is an eternal flame that still burns for Caesar. <laughs> and it just blew me away. This man who lived thousands of years ago, there is still an eternal flame, and people still lay flowers at his grave. Amazing. I know. There's an Italian scholar who wrote a book about Caesar called Julius Caesar, Caesar the Democratic Dictator. Um and so there is this notion that Caesar is a man of people. He wasn't a man of people, but that he represented the people, that he was a populist. Um, there are those who see him that way and think that he sincerely uh, believed in the cause of the Roman people. There are others who would say, well, maybe, but he believed in himself above all. And he didn't shrink from starting a civil war uh, to defend himself and his position. And... I don't know about Alexander the Great, but the other two met pretty grisly ends. And it seems that when you talk about these type of great leaders, it's like tragic characters yeah. in the great plays, if you think about in, in Greek tragedy. <laughs> yeah. They, so, and they, so what were their flaws? What did they have that eventually led to their own demise? Well, I, I think all three of them shared an inability to know when to stop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that certainly true in the case of Alexander, who, after having conquered the Persian Empire, said, I'm bored with governing. This is not what I want to do. Uh, and he was preparing to start a new war against Arabia uh, when he died in June of the year 323 uh, BCE. How did he die? Well, that is the interesting question. So um, the ancient sources say that he died of a fever, but they also say maybe 
It's also possible that he was poisoned by those around him because many people had come to the conclusion that Alexander was mad, that he was he had gone insane, that only a lunatic would want to keep fighting this way. He said that after Arabia, next was Carthage. And after Carthage, he was going to go after Rome. Uh, the guy seemed as if there was no off button. He just wanted to keep fighting. Whereas most of his soldiers said, we're rich now. We want to kick back and enjoy life. So there is a minority opinion in the ancient sources. It's not a modern theory that say, well, you know, he might have been poisoned. And I think there's a real possibility. That's very interesting. Barry, one thing that strikes me is we haven't actually told uh, anyone listening or watching this what these men did. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So uh, then that is entirely our fault, not yours. So could we maybe get a, a kind of couple of minutes about each of them, what they did, who they were, where they started, because not all of these men started with great power and privilege sure. at the beginning of their sure. lives. So Alexander comes first chronologically. He was born in the year 356 BCE and died in 323. Um, he was born to privilege. His father was the king of Macedon, Philip II, who was the most consequential king this country had ever had. He did nothing less than create a modern state, a modern innovative army, revolutionary army, and then conquered all the Greek city-states and began what he thought would be his life's work to conquer the Persian Empire. He'd started the invasion, sent an advance force when Philip is assassinated, and young Alexander, at the age of 20, is now the king of Macedon. His enemies, both at home and abroad, thought he'd be a pushover, uh, but they didn't understand the guy was a military and political genius and that he was made of iron. Can I just interrupt that? How does a man at 20 become a military genius? That is a really good question. Um, he First of all, he had been trained by his father, who was absolutely a brilliant, brilliant uh, military commander. Secondly, he'd been trained by Aristotle, who was his tutor. Third, the guy really just was very, very intelligent. Fourth, his mother had convinced him that he was a god, and so he thought he had this destiny. In fact, there's a theory that his mother's behind the assassination of his father, Philip, because Philip had moved on to many other wives, no and uh, he had a wife who had just given, a son, given birth to a son who many thought would be the real heir. Um, so, but the other thing is actually, and your question's a really good one, one of the reasons Alexander did so well is that he was humble enough and smart enough to realize he didn't know everything. And so he kept around some of his father's advisors, some of his father's top generals, and he knew when to listen to them when it's absolutely necessary. After finally conquering most of the Persian Empire, he has them assassinated. He gets rid of them. But he knows he needs them for a while, so he keeps them around. Why wow. did he assassinate them? Because he thought they they had they had sons who were plotting against him, and uh, that's what he that was his re, that's the reason he gave. He might have been right; they may have been plotting against him. Because uh, the Macedonian nobility, um, the Borgias, have nothing on these people. They were assassinating each other again and again and again. That was their that was their national sport. So it's not surprising. Okay, so how old was Alexander when he dies? How old is he when he dies? He's just before his thirty. He turns thirty three. I'm, I'm sort of feeling a bit inferior. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, so that's him. Then yeah. Julius Caesar or Hannibal? Hannibal's Hannibal next. next. So okay. Hannibal's born in 247, so about a century later, uh, and he dies around 183. This is all BC, BCE. Uh, Hannibal's also the son of a great general. His father's name is Hamilcar Barca, uh, which is Hamilcar the Lightning Bolt. Um, he's a terrific general. He's commanding the Carthaginian forces in Sicily. And Rome and Carthage is fighting this about 25-year-long war for control of Sicily. Carthage, Hannibal's, Hamilcar is never defeated on land, but the Roman navy defeats the Carthaginian navy at sea. 
Carthage has to surrender, give up Sicily. And then the Romans um, are not very helpful when Carthage's mercenaries revolt and Hamilcar's in the fight of his life to save his country from the mercenaries. He defeats them. Then he gets the idea to go and start a new empire in southern Spain, which is rich in mineral resources and uh, warriors who can fight for Carthage. Uh, and he is fighting there when he is killed in a skirmish. He brings with him his uh, young sons. Hannibal is the oldest. Uh, allegedly, when Hannibal is eight, the father makes him swear on an altar, eternal vengeance against Rome. So Hannibal grows up. Uh, and he eventually becomes the leader of the Carthaginian army in Spain. Uh, the Romans are getting wind of the fact that Hannibal is expanding. Hannibal attacks a Roman ally, sort of an ally, a semi-ally, and the Romans send an ultimatum to Hannibal and the Carthaginians saying, stop it, you know, um, admit that we are superior and we'll call the shots. And Hannibal says, no way, we want war, because he he is truly of all three of them, no one is better at war than Hannibal. Um, the overused term military genius applies to few people uh, in the way that it does to Hannibal. And how does he become a genius? Because he's young as well when he becomes... He's not as young as Alexander, uh -huh. you know, but his father was the greatest general of his age, and his father raised him to fight. Uh, when his father dies, he doesn't immediately take over. Um, I think it's his brother-in-law. Some other member of the extended family takes over, and then he's assassinated. Um, so Hannibal has a number of years to learn the art of war. But as with, you know, all things, it's part learning, and it's part intuition, and it's part natural talent and ambition. So he's got all of those. Um, also, Carthage was a place where the Greek experts in the art of war and Greece had, um, was really where the fancy dancers of war came from. Um, they had tr taught the Carthaginians how to fight. The Romans were more sloggers um, uh, than maneuver warfare, but Hannibal was an expert at maneuver warfare. That's his thing. So he, he, he goes on this long march, this 900-mile-long march from southern Spain all the way across the Pyrenees, across the Rhone River, across the Alps, uh, into northern Italy with his 37 elephants, one of the great epics of history, how Hannibal pulls this off. And then he immediately starts wiping the floor with the Romans because he knows this new way of war that the Romans had never seen before. You know, uh, the Romans are like an American football team that only has one play, which is to take the ball and run up the middle um or and hannibal is is executing all these fancy plays and he destroys roman army after roman army after roman army he has a, an, a strategy his strategy is to get the allies of italy uh to defect from rome and to join him how does he do that um he is a very fast talker so <laughs> uh, when he defeats the romans and roman armies would consist of roman citizens and allies uh the roman citizens become prisoners and some of them are sold as slaves some are killed the allies hannibal says you guys go home you're italians we're here to free italy italy for the italians we're here to free you from the romans remember the romans are only a small part of italy most of italy is made up of other peoples hannibal is very successful in the north of italy and in the south of italy getting people to rebel against Rome, but he's not successful in the central part of Italy. That's the nut he doesn't know how to crack. And so, although he, he hands the Romans one of the two greatest defeats they would ever have, the defeat at the Battle of Cannae uh, in August of 216, the Romans refuse to surrender. And one of the reasons they refuse to surrender is they still have these allies in central Italy, and they provide the manpower pool that allows the Romans to fight and fight and fight. And Hannibal has a problem. 
He's figured out how to win battles, but he's not figured out how to win a war. What if you do, if the enemy you keep defeating says, we're not surrendering, we're going to go on fighting. It's a little bit like Hitler's problem with Britain in World War II, when Hitler says, okay, beat you, time to surrender. And they say, no, we're not going to surrender. But Britain had territorial separation. Britain's an island, whereas central Italy isn't. No, it's not an island, but these are fortified cities. They all Uh, have walls. He can't sack them. He can't because Hannibal has he has a big problem. His problem is he doesn't like sieges. He's not good at them. They're boring to him. And in a siege in Spain, he's wounded uh, in his leg um, by uh, an enemy uh, an enemy arrow. I think he never forgets this. He never puts in the effort to laying siege to these cities, uh, and that's a real problem. Wow! See, he literally lost a war because. He didn't want to do sieges because he had a bad experience. I don't know if that's true. I wouldn't go that far. That's okay. my that's my uh, five and dime psychology. But he never does these sieges. He never pulls them off. And, you know, um, after he wins the Battle of Cannae, one of his uh, generals says to him, we've won Hannibal. Let's march to Rome. The cavalry can be there in a few days and the army will follow afterwards. And the Romans are terrified now. We've killed 50,000 Romans uh, out of about 80,000 who fought. Um, they're going to surrender. We're going to win. Some traitor will open the gates. And Hannibal says, we can't do that, you know, Um Our army is too exhausted. We took casualties as well. By the time we get there, the Romans will be prepared for us. And the guy looks at him and says, Hannibal, you know how to win a victory, but you don't know what to do with it. And we're told that years later, Hannibal said, "Eh, he was right. If only I had figured out then to go against Rome. And what happens from there? So what happens from there is that Hannibal, you know, he now gets uh, Rome's most important ally, a city called Capua, um, to defect against Rome. Uh, you may never have heard of Capua, and there's a good reason for it, because it, when this war is over, the Romans make sure that you'll never hear about, <laughs> never hear of, of Capua. But Hannibal has southern Italy and northern Italy. He doesn't have central Italy. And the Romans have finally figured out that the way to fight Hannibal is not to fight Hannibal. Uh, they adopt uh, they they, they uh, appoint a dictator named uh, Fabius Maximus, um, and Fabius uh, it, it comes up with what we now call the Fabian strategy. That is to say, a scorched earth strategy, harass the enemy, deny him food, because Hannibal didn't bring food with him, uh, but don't actually fight him. Um, so they're cutting around uh, the edges of Hannibal. But Hannibal, they, they can't get him out of Italy. They understand that they're not going to win this war in Italy. They think they originally wanted to invade Carthage, but they couldn't do that because Hannibal was so disastrous to them in Italy. So instead, they invade Spain, where Carthage has this really important colony. That's the heart of its empire, aside from the North African parts. Um, But the Carthaginian armies are too sophisticated and too good for the Romans. Unfortunately for Hannibal, one of the reasons the Romans are so successful is they're really flexible. They're really adaptable. They're not like the Greeks who would say, you know, we have our philosophy. We have our way of doing things and we're not going to change. The Romans say, we're Romans, you know, we're pragmatists. We're going to do what works. So they violate their own constitution and they appoint a young man before the age of 35 to become their general. Um, and he retrains the Roman army to fight like Hannibal. Um, and he brings the Roman army to Spain. His name is uh, uh, Scipio, uh, eventually Scipio Africanus, because he defeats Carthage. And uh, the first thing he does in a shock move is he takes the, the Carthaginian capital in Spain. It's called New Carthage, nowadays Cartagena in Spain. 
uh, and he takes it uh, by surprising the defenders at a place that they considered uh, the wall uh, that no one could climb the wall because of the uh, because there was water there be- when um, the tide came in. I think it's probably not a tide, but there's some um, uh, meteorological effect. Uh, he uses the right moment to attack. They're not prepared for him, and he takes the Carthaginian capital in Spain. He then proceeds to defeat the Carthaginian armies in battle because Hannibal's brothers, although they're very good, they're not up to Hannibal's standard. And so young Scipio has conquered Spain. Um, Hannibal's still in Italy. He had two brothers. One of them's killed. One of them survives. And the surviving brother comes to Italy, uh, bringing an army. He may have had three brothers. Sorry, I don't quite remember. Anyhow, one of the brothers brings an army to Italy, uh, and he's there to relieve Hannibal. But unfortunately for him, the Romans have gotten better and better, um, and uh, they have a lucky break. Uh, they capture his plans. Uh, a, a courier is carrying his plans. They capture his plans. Uh, and um, they manage to surprise him. And they destroy the army of Hannibal's brother uh, at the Battle of Metaurus. Uh, they kill him. They behead him. And a fast rider goes to southern Italy where Hannibal was and tosses the brother's head over the wall of Hannibal's uh, stockade. And Hannibal realizes this is not going to end well. So now... The Romans, this Cornelius, Scipio convinces the Roman Senate that what we need to do is invade North Africa. They really don't want to do it. They think it's too risky. But um, talk about a member of the tribe of the eagle. Scipio really is that. So he does invade North Africa. Um, and uh, he forces Hannibal to leave Italy. Nothing the Romans have done up to then would have forced Hannibal to leave Italy. He could have stayed there for good. But this forces him back home. To make a long story short, Scipio is one good general, but he's also a very good diplomat. And the Carthaginians also depended on allies, as the Romans did. Their most important ally was the Numidians, roughly today's Algerians. And what they brought to the table was they were the best uh, light-armed horsemen in the world. They were tremendously good, uh, fast cavalrymen. Uh, a staunch ally of Carthage, but Scipio manages to talk them out of it. It's a long, fascinating story involving a woman. Uh, it's a great story, but we could spend the rest of the time talking about it. In any case, Scipio, you know, sets this up for a final battle against Hannibal. And believe it or not, before the battle, the two men meet. Hannibal goes to a meeting with Scipio, and it's one of the great dramatic moments in history. To have been a fly on the wall of that tent would have just been amazing uh, to hear the two of them talk. It's one of my favorite moments. Would have been a hell of a podcast. Right. Yeah, I would have been a hell of a podcast. (laughs) And do we know what happened in that meeting at all? Uh, Well, we know that Scipio, um, Scipio was playing a double game. He was waiting for his Numidian allies to show up. And so he was stalling for time, uh, and Hannibal played for it, except Hannibal uh, fell for it, rather. Except I think Hannibal, I think, is really, really intelligent. I think Hannibal understands that his chances of losing this battle are pretty great. And Hannibal is already thinking to the day after, okay, I lose the battle, then what? Do I want the Romans to come and uh, ask for my head, which they might do, or do I want the leading Roman general to think we're buddies? And that he can deal, do business with me afterwards. So I think that's why Hannibal agreed to this meeting, even though he knew he was probably not going to get anything out of it. So they have the meeting. They start the battle. Uh, Hannibal is doing brilliant stuff with what he's got left. He doesn't have the great army he had before. Um, and he's quite successful. But the Numidian cavalry show up and they destroy the Carthaginian army. And Hannibal has to flee. 
So that is the end of his attempt to conquer Rome. But Hannibal has, if we have time, he has a little, really interesting afterlife. So um, his friendship with Scipio really pays off. Scipio convinces the Senate to let Hannibal live and to let Hannibal be essentially uh, the quasi-dictator of Carthage. Carthage is still a very prosperous city. And um, um, Hannibal puts Carthage back on its feet to pay the reparations to the other Romans. But he puts it back on his feet too much. The Romans are afraid Carthage is going to come back again. So they drive him out. Hannibal in exile now goes to what is nowadays Turkey uh, to become a military advisor to um, the uh, king there, a man named Antiochus. Uh, And Hannibal is uh, uh, the strategist of his war against Rome. He fails in the end. And Ultimately, the Romans corner poor Hannibal, um, and he commits suicide. He has poison in his ring. He takes the poison. It's outside of Istanbul uh, today, and you can actually go to the place where Hannibal committed suicide, but you probably won't because almost nobody knows where it is. I know this seems like a very specific question. How quickly does this poison work? Is it instant? Do we know? I don't know. No, I, I, uh, um, we might know, but I don't know. You know, I'm just curious because it's like you take the, if you've been cornered, they better work quick. Otherwise, you're just going to suffer for a That's long. a really good point. Yeah. Well, you know, the ancients were experts in pharmacology. Uh, and I'm sure Hannibal had access to, uh, to an expert. We'll, so look, let, it we'll yeah. look it up. We'll look it up. Yeah. All right. Barry, uh, I was going to ask you something, which is you've described these three men as geniuses. And yes. of course, that seems entirely accurate. Why haven't you described Scipio as a genius? Oh, I could describe Scipio as a genius as well, but I believe in, in trinities, mm-hmm. so I do both <laughs> with three. I mean, Barry's Catholic, then. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that is amazing. And now let's move on to Caesar. Yes. So Caesar, what was his story? So Caesar, uh, unlike any of these other three, uh, isn't raised by a famous father. Mm. He comes from the Roman nobility, but it's a family that's a bit down on its luck. He's raised in Rome. His mother, Aurelia Cotta, was always a very big influence on his life, and she lives until he's well on advanced in in years. His father dies, we think, of a stroke when he's fairly young. Uh, but Caesar is immensely ambitious and like any ambitious young roman noble he goes into the military that was what they're expected to do and already at the age of 18 he's a military hero he saves a roman soldier's life in the siege of the city of Mytilene in on a greek island uh and he is given uh um uh, um, he's given a crown um he's given a wreath of glory and he's so important now uh that roman senators have to stand up and when he enters the room, uh, which could go to the head of an 18-year-old and kind of pisses off a bunch of Roman senators who think, who is this kid? Caesar's the guy who, is, when you meet him, he's always looking over your shoulder to see who can uh, help him further. Um, he is ambition-defined, white-hot ambition. Uh, and he wants nothing but to restore his family's glory uh, and to rise to the top of the Roman world. Uh, his uncle by marriage was Marius, as in Marius and Sulla. Marius was... A popularis, which I would translate as populist, but some of my fellow scholars think they weren't populist, but they kind of were a populist, uh, even though they themselves were not men of the people. They were very, very wealthy, but we can see even nowadays we have populists who are not men of the people. Uh, and Caesar, in, in a period in which Roman politics was always divided between um, the, the men of the people and the men of the few, the oligarchs and the 
populace. He was always on the side of the populace. Um, he wanted to rise to the highest political office in Rome uh, to become uh, the consul, and then to have a military command which will allow him to win glory. Supposedly when he's in his 30s, he has a relatively minor command in Spain, and he sees a statue of Alexander the Great, and supposedly he starts crying. Alexander was dead uh, when, when he was m at my age, and he'd already conquered the world. What have I done? So he's, he, Caesar has it all. He's a great general. He's a great speaker. He is a great political manipulator. And he's also a great writer. I mean, he writes great literature, the Gallic Wars and the Civil Wars. Um, they're hard to translate, so it's hard to get it in English. Uh, but they really are quite something. He wrote other works as well, which no longer survive. Uh, and as a behind-the-scenes manipulator, he creates a, a, a a conspiracy uh, with two other leading politicians more prominent than him, Crassus, who's the richest man in Rome, and Pompey, who's the most successful general to date. They're going to do a deal. Caesar's the guy who can make it happen. He's the deal maker. Uh, they each get something. Caesar gets to be consul. Pompey gets his um, the, the steps that he's taken in the east. He gets them approved by the Senate, and he gets his men um uh, settled on land in Italy, his veterans, and Crassus gets a command to fight a war against Parthia, uh, Iran, basically, in the east. Uh, Crassus fails, and he's killed in battle. Uh, Pompey gets what he wants, um, but he is Caesar's son-in-law. He's married to Caesar's one and only legitimate child, his daughter, uh, but she dies in childbirth, and Crassus is increasingly jealous of Caesar. Excuse me, Pompey's increasingly jealous Wait. of Caesar. Sorry, I'm confused. She dies in oh, she dies in childbirth, yeah. as in, but she's not the child. Sorry, no, I was like, no, sorry. he was married to a baby. How did no? no, no Pompey's no, no. older, a few years yeah. older than Caesar. Sorry, I was being stupid. No, not at all. He marries Caesar's daughter, so he is technically Caesar's son-in-law. Yes, the Romans, like the mafia, did these kind of marriages all the time to seal yeah. political deals. Right, and. Uh, in the meantime, Caesar gets what he really wanted, command of Gaul, to start a war in Gaul and conquer all of Gaul, which is basically France and Belgium. And just for good measure, he crosses the Rhine and invades Germany. And then he crosses the Channel and invades England, which to the Romans was the equivalent of going to Mars or the moon. Wow, the Atlantic Ocean, the, the English Channel, so scary, but he does it. Pompey's getting more and more jealous of this guy. You know, I thought I was the greatest general in Rome. Who's this guy? He thinks he's the greatest general. So uh, when Julia, Caesar's daughter, dies in childbirth, and Caesar says, don't worry, I, I got a niece. I'll marry to my niece. Pompey says, I don't think so. And Pompey now moves to the other side and the other faction. After Caesar conquers Gaul, he wants to come back to Rome and have a second slot as consul. Uh, be respected as the leading man in Rome, pass some laws that will help his constituency, the poor people of Rome, and settle his veterans. But he has made huge enemies, very powerful enemies. Anyone in Rome who considers himself a conservative uh, of any sort at this point thinks that Caesar is a threat uh, to their way of life. Why? Ah, that is a good question. There's two theories of scholars. Uh, one is that they were dyed-in-the-wool, purblind fools who didn't understand that Rome needed to change. Um, they thought they could uh, turn the, the hourglass back and keep Rome the way it had always been. Rome had acquired an empire of 50 million people at a minimum, uh, but it was governed by a few families in the city of Rome. This was crazy. They had to bring in the outsiders. Both Pompey and Caesar knew that, but the old-fashioned senators didn't. 
There is a second theory, and also the old-fashioned senators hated the Roman people, and they didn't want to see them get more power. But there's a second theory that says, well, that's all well and good, but the truth is that Caesar was an egomaniac who wanted to dominate Rome as no one had ever done before. I actually think both theories are right. I think that uh, these uh, senators really didn't understand that Rome needed to change. They didn't like the Roman people, but Caesar was no pussycat. Uh, Caesar wanted to enjoy a kind of the Romans made a distinction between power and authority. Power is legal power is written in stone. Authority is the informal power. And they called it auctoritas. And there's no doubt in my mind that Caesar wanted to have the kind of auctoritas that would make him the greatest mafia don of all time. Uh, after all, he settles for nothing less than Cleopatra as his woman. Um, and she bears his son, almost certainly bears his son. They see this. They, he's not with Cleopatra yet, but they see him as a threat uh, to their way of life. And so uh, they demand, they fire him and um, say, say, step down, come back to Rome, stand trial for your crimes. And Caesar says, I don't think so. I think I'm going to invade Italy instead <laughs> and start a civil war. And he says, I'm doing this for two reasons. One is to defend the Roman people because the, the, um, the tribunes of the plebs, who are in technically defenders of the Roman people in the Constitution, uh, they have been dissed by the Senate, which is true. They had been dissed by the Senate. But the second reason, he says, and to me, this is vintage Caesar, it's because my rank and standing is greater to me than my life itself. In Latin, my dignitas is greater to me, is dearer to me than life itself. And dignitas doesn't just mean dignity. It means my rank, my standing, my reputation. So for this, he starts a civil war. It's a civil war that rages for four years. It ends up seeing um, his opponents, Pompey, being uh, murdered, Cato committing suicide, the other generals being killed in battle, and Caesar winning it all, including Cleopatra. He is now the uh, dictator for life, dictator in perpetuity. There's never been anyone like this in Rome before. And it's that when a conspiracy of senators decides, no mas. We've got to stop this guy. And do they say that because he's essentially usurped all the power that there was? And yes. they're like, this guy's yes. out of control. Yes. By now he is really out of control. And even some of his former supporters say, wait a minute, we didn't sign up for this. Mm. You know, we didn't sign up for this guy behaving like a mafia don and giving the, the choicest jobs to his family members. We didn't sign up for this guy basically abolishing elections. He didn't technically abolish them, but de facto abolished them. And the Romans really cared about elections. So, uh, and they didn't like the idea that he was dictator in perpetuity. What does this mean? Uh, no one, Romans never dictated supposed to be for six months only. Um, and they didn't like the idea that the Senate had declared him to be a god. Um, so for all, and they didn't like the idea that his, he had a Roman wife, but his mistress, who, by the way, he kept in a palace across the Tiber, Caesar's palace, we'll call it. Now, Caesar's villa or really was. That's where Cleopatra was at the time of his assassination, hanging out in Rome. Um, and she was probably pregnant with his second child, but uh, she has a miscarriage. So uh, there are just a lot of people in Rome who've had it with this guy. That makes sense. And Barry, it's so interesting to me because... I've never, we've never interviewed a historian about these individuals in right. this way. I'm just, this is a brilliant conversation. I'm so happy to oh, have you on. It's fantastic. One of the things that occurs to me is these great historical, I mean, these people are maniacs. In a way, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean that if you had a guy now what? who came along and was like, look, I want to be great, therefore let's go and invade France. I mean, France is, yeah, invade <laughs> France. I've got no problem invading France, but <laughs> invade some other country, kill loads of people so that I can raise my status in the hierarchy of my society. 
we would say that guy's a lunatic. Lock him up. But if, but it's not only that, but it is that. But it's not only that. But look at some other modern examples. Look at Abraham Lincoln. He has a choice. He can make peace with the South and say, well, at, at least nobody died. Or he can fight the war however it takes. And by the time the war's over, 600,000 people, are 600,000 Americans on both sides are dead. The South is in ruins. And finally, the last casualty is Lincoln himself. Some people might say that's crazy. Or Churchill, you know, Britain could have made peace. Thank God they didn't. But Churchill basically said, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, you know. And if Britain's going to be in ruins and a lot of uh, British people die, that's what we have to do to save our way of life. Uh, and but that's said, different, isn't it? That's different because both Lincoln and Churchill, they're also fighting for an idea. Well, Whereas here, it seems much more about personal ego power. Maybe because I've made it that way. Oh, okay. But no, you're right. There is a difference because, but it's also from our point of view, Caesar would have said, I am fighting for the Roman Empire. We Romans believe that we are destined to govern the world. As uh, his successor, Augustus says, empire without end. Mm. That comes from Virgil's The Aeneid. And that's what Romans thought. And Caesar would also have said, the Gauls have threatened Italy's security in the past, and that will never happen again. They hadn't threatened Italy's security for 60 years, but never mind. Um, and also Caesar believed, and I'm the only one who stands up for the common person in Rome. So there's that too. But you're absolutely right. In all three of these cases, there's ego. Hannibal thinks he's defending his country and getting revenge. Alexander thinks he's defeating the Persian threat and making Greece and Macedon the greatest power in the world and changing history and spreading civilization, which in fact he did too. So, you know, it's let, not... Let me rephrase yes. what I mean. If we found out yeah. that Rishi Sunak yeah. is, or Joe Biden yeah. are sitting in their offices in, in, in the Oval Office and then number 10 Downing Street... Yes. And they're saying, well, you know, my mother told me that I am born of a snake that is God. Right. And therefore, I am entitled to conquer the world. Yes. We'd get the mental hospital right. out there urgently to deal with them. I can imagine Trump saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it is possible. Uh, which, uh, which I think it's fair to say some people have criticized him for, uh, to put it mildly. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, is yes. it fair to say that not only is it that these men are different, but the culture in which they operate is sure. so different that we would probably struggle to relate to it at this point? Yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, we have politicians today who might say, I really think I'm here for a reason. Mm. God put me here for a reason. And my reason is to help the people. The reason is to defend my country. We could imagine a politician saying that. Mm. Um, so, I mean, these, these are countries with different religions. So, Well, I mean, Vladimir Putin almost certainly thinks in this. Sure. Way. And I mean, there were other Greeks at the time who couldn't stand what Alexander said. Alexander later in his life passes a decree saying, I need to be worshipped as a god. I insist that everyone worships <laughs> me as a god. And the various Greek city-states, you know, couldn't agree fast enough to do this, except Sparta. Sparta says, if Alexander wants to be worshipped as a god, let him. I mean, the Spartans were, they were pretty badass, weren't they? They were pretty badass, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to have a really strong sense of identity to stand up to Alexander the Great. No, they they were happy in this instance. They well, went along with it, right? No, 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 oh, no, no, no. Sorry, I mean, you know, the I, idea I was confused. if that's what he wants, go ahead. 
They, they More like, go ahead and make my day. Oh, I sorry, see, I sorry, see, sorry, sorry. They basically gave him the finger. Oh, yeah, I see. I exactly. They're giving him the finger. Thank I you. You put I it. Yeah. You put it so well. <laughs> <laughs> so and um, so, we'll move back to season in a second. Yeah. So, so what actually happened with with the Spartans when they gave him the metaphorical finger? Nothing. Nothing happened. I mean, uh, for one thing, Alexander was far away. He was in Iraq. Uh, for another thing. Nobody really cared about Sparta that much anymore. And besides which, it would have been bad for business for the Macedonians to have destroyed Sparta, just as it was bad for business for them to destroy Athens. Athens rebelled twice. Uh, they didn't destroy it. They did destroy Thebes, which they could get away with. They uh, get away with because all of Thebes' neighbors hated Thebes and wanted to see it destroyed. Um, at this point, Sparta was no longer a great power. It was um, it was on the decline, and yet it had a lot of prestige for what it had done for the Greek world. So they got away with it. And then Alexander died, and his successors had other things to do, like fighting each other. So they didn't worry that much about Sparta. So moving back to Caesar then. So, yep. we're, so we're talking about essentially the end of Caesar's life. Yes. How did the conspiracy arise? How did the plotters get together? And how did they execute it? So um, the conspirators, uh, there were three main conspirators, two who we know from Shakespeare, Brutus and Cassius. And there's a third one who Shakespeare just um, um, kind of disses, really. His name is Decimus Brutus. He's a distant cousin of Brutus and Cassius. Brutus and Cassius had both fought against Caesar in the Civil War. And then um, after being defeated, had asked for a pardon for Caesar, and he gave it to them. Decimus Brutus is different. He'd always fought for Caesar and with Caesar, both in Gaul and then in the Civil War. But he changes his mind, possibly because of his wife, uh, who comes from a, an anti-Caesar family, and partly, possibly because he sees that Caesar is moving on to new favorites. Caesar is planning to invade Iran. That's going to be his life's, cap his life's work, invade the Parthian Empire. Um, but he's leaving Decimus Brutus at home. Um, and so Decimus is, is pissed off about this. Brutus and Cash. Brutus is a philosopher. He is married to the, uh, the daughter of Cato the Elder, who is Caesar's most uh, vehement enemy. Um, and Brutus really believes in the principles of the Roman Republic. Um, Cassius is more of a military man, less of a philosopher. But they both don't like the way that Caesar has... Uh, uh, gained power, and Decimus is, decides to go over to their side. So they gather together a group of, depending on who you believe, either 35 or 60-some-odd uh, senators, or 60-some-odd senators, let's say, to join this conspiracy to kill Julius Caesar. And they want to do it um, in a way, they want to do it themselves, first of all. They could have hired thugs to do it. They don't want to do it. They want to do it themselves to show that this is not just a garden variety murder, but it's something for the, for the sake of Rome. And they want to do it in a meeting of the Roman Senate. Again, to make the point, we're not killing him out of pique or an ambition. We're doing it out of idealism for the Roman Senate. They managed to keep it secret because Caesar doesn't really believe it. It's not as if he doesn't get rumors of conspiracies against him. The problem is what they call noise. He's getting rumors every single day of conspiracies against him. And so Caesar also thinks, whatever. The other thing is Caesar's very arrogant. We've seen this a lot in history. Caesar thinks, who would be crazy enough to kill me? Rome has just gone through a four-year civil war, and it was disastrous. Huge casualties, huge destruction. If you kill me, Civil War II, the sequel, is going to break out. Who would do that? I'm untouchable. And we see the result. 
It brings up an interesting question, br- branching out beyond these yeah. three figures specifically, Barry. As you yeah. mentioned, and it's from the way you tell the stories, it right. seems certainly true that <laughs> these guys really didn't know when to stop. Right? They didn't said. know when to stop. They absolutely didn't know when to stop. Are there leaders of their magnitude in history who did? Yes. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, one is William the Conqueror. Mm. After conquering England, he says, that's nice. I'm, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to administer this place. <laughs> he didn't go on. Um, so, um, <laughs> I suppose the difference there is he conquered a kingdom that he, he didn't have. He wasn't a king before, right. right? But he could have gone and tried to conquer more kingdoms. That's true. So that's true. But yes, Alexander conquers a kingdom he didn't have before. Um, but wasn't he king of a kingdom already? Yes. Right. That's but, the difference. But, but uh, William was the Duke of Normandy, which is no mean place. Yeah, it's a big, it's sure, it's a, it's yeah. a big place, but he's no king. So that's one, and yeah. he, he stays and governs. Yeah. Anymore? Uh, Ataturk. Uh, yes. Ataturk, you know, Turkey's a satiated power. said, that's enough. We don't want to do this anymore. Don't need any more. I mean, he wasn't a nice guy, um, <laughs> but uh, he does know when to stop. Um, in a sense, George Washington, sorry, my British friends, but <laughs> Washington could have become a king. And he said, no. And he could have been president for more than two terms. And he said, no, that's that's enough. So is it is, is it partly because these figures come <laughs> later on in history? Therefore, they don't have this idea that they have been ordained or by God or representing God or even being literally God. Um, I don't know. No, Napoleon is later than then uh, it's pretty late in history, but he doesn't know when to stop. Yeah, you can <laughs> and, say that again. And Hitler's pretty recent, and he didn't know when to stop. Mm. Um, you know, I think uh, another person who knows when to stop is Franco. You know, also not a nice guy. But, you know, Hitler's saying to him, hey, come on, come on, don't you want to join me and Mussolini in the war? And he says, I don't think so. No, no, no. We have a lot of, we have a problems in Spain. No, I think we'll be neutral. Imagine if Mussolini had stayed neutral in World War II. He would have survived. You know, and Italy would have been spared a lot of ruin. So, um, so there are people who know when to stop. They really are. And going back to the question of fatal flaws, was that the all that was that their fatal flaw of these three great men, which is the inability to stop, or was there something else as well? Oh, something else. I mean, I, um, it's less true of Hannibal, although you can make a case for it, than it is of Caesar and Alexander. But they're so arrogant. These, they're just so arrogant. Uh, the idea that um, it's related to knowing when to stop, but the idea that they would keep on going after what they had done, or that Caesar would thought that he was untouchable, or if Alexander really was poisoned, that he didn't see that coming either. Um, Alexander had actually murdered one of his leading generals in a fit of rage earlier on in his life. Um, and that certainly impressed some of his generals with thinking the life expectancy in this job is not very great. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they made enemies that they, that, that they didn't need to make or for Caesar to think that he was, that he was untouchable. Uh, before we uh, wrap up, we've only got yeah. 10 more minutes or yeah, so sure. before we go to questions from our locals. Yeah. Uh, you're a military historian as right. well. And one of the things I was fascinated about when you were talking about how the Greeks, while the Romans were these kind of sloggers, yeah. perhaps not very skilled right. tactically, right. the Greeks came up with new ways of fighting. Yes. What was it? Was it technologically based? Was it intellectually based? Did they come up with tactics that were powerful? What was it? So, I mean, the Greeks, and it's really the Macedonian Greeks who, who come up with this, um, 
they create a combined arms military that uses the infantry and the cavalry working together. Um, And that is a very, very potent combination when you can do that. The Romans are really not good at that. Um, The Macedonians, so Greek armies were pikemen. The armies of the city states and shield and spear, shield and spear, and but they didn't not a javelin but a pike. You know, yes. come up against the enemy and just hit and hit and hit. It was pretty simple. Um, but the Macedonians come up with a a new system whereby um, so the pike of the Greek uh, hoplites was infantrymen was nine feet long. The Macedonians come up with a new pike that's about fifteen feet long. Wow. Uh, the pike, a nine foot long pike, you can hold in one hand while you have a big body shield and in a th- you hold through a thong with your left hand you can't hold a 15 foot uh spear in your hand it's too heavy you need both hands uh so uh, the solution and you can't have uh a uh, you don't have a hand to hold a body shield if you put the body shield and thong around your neck it's going to choke you so the solution is to have a little shield how do you do that uh well the macedonians are the hardest drinkers in greece so they go into battle uh having had Dutch courage, as it were, and a lot of Dutch courage. The other thing is that the Greeks and the city states are citizens. If the generals had told them you don't have, you can't have so much protection anymore, they would have fired the generals. Macedonians are subjects in a kingdom. The king has more power, and frankly, they're kind of hillbillies, and uh, they're willing to take chances because they want to get rich. Uh, in a way that Greek citizens weren't. Uh, they trained year-round. These were professional armies. And the Roman armies weren't professional armies in the beginning either. Uh, that gave them an advantage, and then it allowed them to maneuver, to do things, for instance, like feigning a retreat, a very hard thing to do. And when you draw the enemy in, feign a retreat with half your army, draw the enemy in, and then turn around and hit the enemy on two sides. That's the kind of thing that um, these Greek armies could do, and then use the cavalry to disperse the enemy, and then use the infantry uh, as the hammer. Um, That's the sort of thing, it's difficult to do. Hannibal could do that brilliantly. Uh, The Romans couldn't until they learned to uh, beat him at his own game. And why couldn't they do that? Does it take some kind of signaling or command or training? No, not at all. It's culture. I mean, culture is, in many ways, the most important factor for any any military. Um, you know, um, why do army, national armies fight in the way they do? It's the culture of the country. I mean, why do the Russians think you should just send in men like cannon fodder and slog and slog and slog? Because that's the Russian way of war. I mean, it's just that's just the way that they do it. Uh, why are some countries very good at cunning uh, and uh, special operations and others not? It's everything to do with culture. And just touching the the culture that's always really interested me is the culture of the Spartans. Yes, I just I, as I remember as a He's kid, watched three hundred. Yeah, I've watched three hundred, <laughs> and I've read the comic. Uh, yes. ah. <laughs> but I, as a child, I was obsessed with ancient Greece, and I was particularly yeah. obsessed with Sparta. I remember uh-huh. people going, "It was a bit weird that he just sits and reads books about Sparta." Uh-huh. But what what made them such incredible warriors, Spartans? They were professionals, you know, they were professionals. Uh, they were the only professional military in Greece before the Macedonians, before, before Philip and Alexander. Sparta was a society, was a pyramid. Uh, at the bottom were the helots. These were the serfs. At the middle were the neighbors. Um, they could lead relatively ordinary lives, but they had to serve as Spartan allies when needed. And at the top was a small group of Sp- full Spartan warriors, the so-called peers, 9,000 of them at, at the population height. They, all they did was train for war. Um, and they had a bizarre educational system. Uh, 
they were taken from their parents at the age of seven and they went to live in age graded barracks um, where they were uh, their primary group was boys of the same age and there they were taught how to fight uh, and they were also taught how to be tough to uh, live out in the wild to steal to kill to do what you needed to do to survive so they had the most professional and toughest soldiers in Greece um, so that that is uh, one of the reasons they're so strong. Also, their entire society is set up on a military basis. It's an austerity society. Uh, ain't no, uh, none of this culture stuff. The only songs they sing are military songs. The other thing is the role of the Spartan woman, which is a very big part of it. Uh, women in Sparta were meant to be wise mothers, breeders, and their job was to tell the men to buck up. Uh, the famous staying of the Spartan mother to so many ones goes off to battle with it or on it. Come back with your shield. Don't throw it away like a coward or come back dead on your shield. I'd rather have you dead than to have you alive without your shield. Um, Spartan uh, girls were the only girls in Greece to have a public education. Um, they were uh, trained to run the household when the men were away. Uh, but they were also trained in gymnastics and they were trained in the nude. Greek boys were trained in the nude, nothing unusual about that. But only in Sparta were girls trained in the nude as well. And boys and girls would see each other in the nude in public. Uh, the idea was to get everybody really horny. Uh, so they would go off and make future Spartans. So uh, it's a whole society that's set up for war. It's really quite remarkable and horrible. It sounds like, you know, the, the comic... Uh movie or whatever it is is actually not that inaccurate in terms of how they were trained no it's not that inaccurate it's not that inaccurate wow. yeah and it's very interesting as well and particularly brutal the way they treated boys who weren't gonna make it or they didn't think were well so i mean the spartans had this system that when a baby is born a baby has to be inspected by a public inspector uh and if they think the kid is sickly or not going to make it they expose the child on a mountainside uh where the baby will either die or somebody might take him and enslave the uh enslave the child the sparta was the only greek state that did this as, as by government initiative um but the other Greek states, a, a father had the authority to do this to his own child. But it'd be much more difficult for a father to sacrifice his own child than it would for an impersonal state to do it. And why did they never... Because if you look at them militarily and, and the fighters that they produced, they're, they're still famous now. Spartan right. warriors. still right. Even people who may, may understand very little about the culture, that still resonates. Why is it they never went on to conquer the world? Because you don't win, it's a great question, but you don't win wars just by having uh, having good soldiers. For one thing, the, the most important thing you need to have to be successful at war is money. And Sparta didn't have any money. Spartans abolished money. Uh, they had a barter system and they had uh, ungainly iron spits because they thought money was corrupting. corrupting. Um, and that's the other side of the Spartans. They really didn't want to conquer the world. They wanted to be pure. They wanted to be great pure warriors. So they conquered the Peloponnesus, the southern peninsula of Greece, and part of central Greece. They didn't want to go any further. The other problem is that reason is they have a security problem. Um, all Greek city-states have enslaved labor, unfree labor. But Sparta is one of the only ones in which the unfree laborers are Greeks. In Athens, the unfree laborers are all kidnapped, enslaved, brought in from abroad. And then um, 
their bread enslaved families. In Sparta, they basic most of the people they've enslaved are their neighbors to the west, the Mycenaean Greeks. Uh, and the Spartans make the mistake of letting these people to continue to live in their national homeland. Um, they want their country back. Uh, and they rebel against the Spartans whenever they can. The Spartans, young Spartan boys, as their initiation into the military, have to spend two years living in the countryside where the helots are and making their lives miserable. Uh, they have the right to kill them. Every year on New Year's Day, Sparta declares war on the helots and says, we can kill these people if, if necessary. Um, so um, they have the security problem. But they have this notion of purity, which is not really what you want. If you want to conquer the world, you need to be a pragmatist. And the Spartans are anything but pragmatic. Barry, I, I mean, I, I hope we get a chance to have you back about 50 times <laughs> because we can talk about the Romans as an empire, the Greeks. There's so many other things we can talk about. And Carthage is one thing Carthage that we, is amazing, yeah. we don't know about because the Romans kind of make sure yes. we, we don't know yeah. about it. So uh, if you have time at some point, we would love to have you back sure. on the show. For now, we're going to head over to Locals where we ask you questions from our audience. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Of the leaders you have written about or researched, who would be perfect to lead the West out of the current situation? And whom should today's leaders emulate? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.